I'm Jessica, and this is Homecoming, Finding Yourself in Life's Little Moments. Hi, dear listener. Well, it's been a few weeks since I've made a podcast, and I hope that this finds you well wherever in the world you are. It's a very interesting time. It continues to be a time of flux and change, and I really do believe incredible, possibly unprecedented possibility. So it's really in that context and in that spirit that I make this podcast. And the reason that it's been a while since I've uh, created a podcast episode is because my own life has been in a state of significant change, kind of mirroring, I think, the change that is happening on a collective level, a global level. All of us have gone through a period of lockdown and that's still happening in places And in that time, I was moved into a completely different kind of situation in terms of my work. I was teaching many wonderful, beautiful children piano, and suddenly that was no longer possible. They would come to my home, and I would teach them families and students. It was, you know, really beautiful. But in late March, everything changed, and suddenly that was not happening and could not happen. So I had no anticipation that after teaching for almost 40 years, that I suddenly would be in a sort of position or situation where that wasn't able to be possible. Now, I don't mind spending time on my own. I find that it is conducive to a kind of depth of contemplation and consideration of life and experience. And with everything being locked down, there was a sort of deeper stillness just in the environment in general. And I've spoken about that in different podcast episodes. And it was something that I realized I was treasuring and cherishing was this sense of, you know, a stillness and a peace. And there was not a lot of movement People really couldn't go places. There wasn't a lot of traffic. The atmosphere became clear, not just here, but in so many other parts of the world. Over the course of just a couple of weeks, two, three weeks, the global environment changed significantly. And I found that my own internal environment shifted also. And what I began to feel in the deeper sort of levels of my own contemplation and consideration of life was that this marks both a collective emergence and change and it was and is proving to mark also an individual change. So over these three months or so and since this has really started to affect our lives here in Australia where I live, I live on the outskirts of Sydney, Australia, I'm making this podcast, it's an evening, and it's quiet, it's nice. But I began to realize that there was something in my heart that was awakening in the space and silence. 
and that something was actually a kind of dream and sense of vision and sense of my own deeper purpose, something that I think had been perhaps given to me, instilled in me, placed in me, something that I perhaps came into the world with from the beginning. When you have a sense like that in the deepest recesses of your heart and you begin to find that it's awakening, there's a kind of reckoning that really begins to happen. And the vision that was emerging from those that place in my heart had to do with a kind of sense of becoming what I think I've always wanted to become, which is a full-fledged, fully devoted pianist, author, storyteller, writer, creative person, total, in total, totally, fully, wholeheartedly, with my entire being, my days devoted to that endeavor. And I began to feel that it was pulling me, you know, that life, the universe, God, the forces at large, the forces that move this great expanse of reality that we're all a part of, were pulling me to, to do this, you know? It was like I was being given the message that my emergence was happening in concert with the emergence of this new world, this new earth, this new way of being, which is what I think is on our doorstep. So I made the decision to shift from teaching to a life as I've described it, and that has begun to happen. So it explains a bit what has occurred most certainly definitively in the last month since I made my last podcast and why I feel I have to lead with that explanation as I create now this new episode. I'm realizing too that, you know, the thoughts, feelings, visions, and hopes that one holds in the silence of one's heart, I think those things now mean more than they ever have. I'm kind of stepping out a little bit on a limb to say that because I don't like to make unequivocal statements, but I do feel that we are really at a point where how we think and feel and envision our lives and the choices that we make, the values that we hold, are going to create something new and one way or another. And so... I think that they're more important now that the quality of those values that what we hold most dear is more important than I think possibly it's ever been before. That's my sense. So there's a kind of sense of not being able to turn back. It's interesting. Like there's almost a pressure to move now into this challenge, into this vision, into this demand to begin to, for myself, bring about, put forth things that I endeavor to fill with my, you know, the gifts that have been given me, the music, and to 
share my stories, to share these podcasts, to share the visions that I've got and have and sensibilities, things that come to me with the idea that if I can add, if I can help to contribute something of beauty and inspiration to this world now, that's the best thing I can possibly do. That's what I was put here to do. Would I have ever known, imagined that all those years ago when I was just a small child or in any point in between, I think I've had glimmers to answer that question. And I can also say that, interestingly, something has come sort of full circle because I remember when I was about 10 or 11, I was watching a program on TV. And at that time, in the late 1960s, we had a couple of TVs. One of them was a color TV. It worked very poorly. Color TV was not a particularly developed technology at that point, and it was really bad. <laughs> we also had a small black and white TV, and in a sense, that was more reliable. Less sort of fewer bells and whistles, but better. So one evening I was watching something on the public television station, and in the United States, that's PBS, Public Broadcasting System, and I was watching something on PBS on the Public Broadcasting Station. And it was a concert. It was a small concert being given by a man who was sitting at a grand piano. He was a pianist. And the audience, rather than it being in a traditional theater or concert hall type of venue, the audience was situated, were, were, the audience was seated around him. It was like he was in the middle of a circle, you know? And he was playing on this grand piano to the audience that was encircling him. But he was doing more than just playing the piano. He was speaking to the audience at the same time. I had never seen anything quite like that. I had seen pianists perform. My mom would often take me into New York City. We lived, I grew up in a suburb of New York. I would go and see with her concert pianists, famous pianists like Vladimir Horowitz and Andre Watts and other amazing, you know, instrumentalists. But this was something different. I detected, even at that young age, that what this man was doing was something different, and the feeling was different. The audience, for one thing, wasn't separate from him. It was like he was connected to them, and they were, as I said, encircling him. And as he was playing, he was also speaking to the audience. He was sharing something with them, and it was the feeling of the whole thing that struck me because his words and the melodies that were coming out of his playing, of his, of his hands as he sat there at that grand piano were intermingling. He was putting forth something of deep meaning and it was like that meaning was landing in the midst of that space. And I will always remember the feeling that I had when I was watching that. I felt 
like I was seeing my future. I felt like I was seeing myself years hence. And it was a very uncanny feeling. It was not, as I'm telling you now, I can say this with a sort of clarity. It didn't have that kind of clarity in my young consciousness. It didn't. But there was a feeling of recognition about what I was seeing as if a seed was planted or awakened inside of me. So we're talking about something that happened 50 years ago. And now, 50 years hence, as the world pivots, as the world changes, as we find ourselves in a situation in which every aspect of our existence is held in the balance, right? You see, I mean, we have a global pandemic, which is affecting different places around the world to different extents. We have different political situations and a feeling of disharmony. I mean, disharmony has always been there, but I think it's been heightened. We have environmental issues that have been brought to the fore. We have a kind of perfect storm. And in that sort of perfect storm, and I'd love to use a different word, it's like a perfect combination of elements that are coming together. You see, if we look at this in the most positive sense, they're coming together to catalyze, to move any of us individually and collectively into a new way of being, a new way of doing things, a new mode of existence, I think is beyond anything that we've seen before from the point of view of our human lives, the natural world, and how all of that coexists on this planet and how this planet can actually become something really extraordinary, beautiful. So as I make this transition myself, as I embrace this fairly big change in my own personal life, two things are on my mind to share with you because these are things that I'm feeling are helping me. Almost like when you're kind of set off into, onto the ocean, into new territory, you're set sail, you know, you step off the pier and you don't really know altogether what's going to happen. You know, and I have to add to that that, you know, my days now are very different to what they were. So there are challenges to that too, emotionally, psychologically, you know, I kind of came up through a certain sort of feeling of like the school of kind of hard knocks, you know, when you have a lot of time to yourself, as people I'm sure are finding, a lot of the residue of things, you know, the, the effects of things that have happened to one rise to the surface like they are sort of floated up, you know, they float up, they come up, there's not the distraction, they're not the things, the activities that there were before to take one's attention away. And so those things that are the residue, the effects, the results of what has happened to one that have been difficult, that have been, you know, painful, that have been hurtful, that have all of these things, they come floating to the surface, right? So 
I um, I also find that, and I think that's probably not uncommon. I have a feeling it's not uncommon because so many of us have come through schools of hard knocks, you know, in one way or another. Life is not that easy, and to whatever extent that's true, it's true for any of us. But I certainly feel, having come through what I have come through, that this moment holds a certain kind of challenge because I'm entering into the unknown, into the unknown. I'm in an unknown, a world that is, in a sense, really less known, the future. And then my own personal life, I'm not stepping into a predefined job. <laughs> I'm actually creating it, you know? So as I'm talking to you, dear listener, this is the creation, you know, this is the very thing. It's like when they say the medium is the message. Well, here we go. Here it is. This is it. So I wanted to share two things with you that have and are helping me that I'm finding are great sources of comfort and sources of guidance, um, sources of illumination and understanding and reassurance and feeling a sort of, you know, these things impart for me a feeling of deep rightness, intuitive rightness. So those two things, dear listener, the first is the realm of physics, the study of the physical world, physics, modern physics. And the second is nature. They're related. But I want to start with physics. Now, I have to offer this disclaimer that I am not a physicist. However, I am finding that returning to the reading of some of the most visionary scientists of the 20th century and 21st century is interestingly providing me with a kind of feeling of direction and, like I said, deep like comfort, interestingly, comfort. So how do I know about this stuff? I mean, again, I'm not a physicist, but a lot of these people, men, mostly men, have written about the implications of their discoveries for human life. So I read these things really in a sense as a layperson and somebody who is responding to what they're telling me, what they're writing about, what they're discovering from the point of view of my own instinctive sense of, of rightness. And, you know, I do find that what they're saying is, is really beautiful. So I'm going to back up because I think this all started with my mother. <laughs> it all started with my mother back in the 60s. She was ahead of her time. So my mother was a PhD student, okay, in the mid to late 60s. She'd already had me. She wanted to get her PhD in child development and in the whole nature of human perception and, and, you know, sort of learning and the apprehending of the world, you know, what happens for a child when they're, when they're growing and learning and developing and how their perceptions affect their lives and vice versa as they grow, how that changes and shifts and so on. So she was doing 
really interesting work for her PhD. We were growing up, I was growing up outside of New York City in this beautiful suburb named Dobbs Ferry. She was studying and writing for her PhD. And she began to realize that some of the people who would help her understand what she was writing about and pursuing were physicists because they were talking about perception and understanding of reality, the understandings of reality, you see. So we can go back to Albert Einstein and his theory of relativity and go up through the 20th century through incredible people who were doing incredible work. So that would have been Niels Bohr, Werner Heisenberg, David Bohm, there were others. These are some of the main guys, okay? And they were finding out really interesting stuff about the nature of matter, the nature of matter and energy and reality and so on and so forth. Large scale matter and energy being related to each other. When we say E equals MC squared, you know, Einstein, he was coming up with incredible sorts of insights into the way that the grand realities of matter and the world and beyond work. And then you had people who were talking about tiny, tiny, tiny particles like photons and neutrons and so on, electrons and how they work, the tiniest even subatomic particles, you know, what happens with them? And they were in the midst, like in the trenches of this, these discoveries. And what was interesting about these guys is that as they were discovering these things, they were also aware that their discoveries were affecting their sense of human experience, of how we learn, of how we develop, of what constitutes human perception, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So my mom in the 1960s is studying these guys. And when I was growing up, those were the books that were in the house. <laughs> were these books on physics, you know, and she was studying and writing about this stuff um, because she wanted to know how children learn. She wanted to know about perception. She wanted to know about human learning and and apprehension and and so on development and so on and so she found out that there was a relationship between what all those guys were doing and what her passion was which was to understand how children develop and her work was actually focused on a swiss philosopher named jean piaget she was doing cutting edge research and writing on his work she realized that, that people, most people didn't understand what he was doing and that he had been wrongly translated. I mean, this is my mom. From the French, he had been wrongly translated. The concepts weren't right. You know, she retranslated everything from the French into English so that she could get a good sense of actually what he was talking about because he seemed to be in line with all of these physicists, right? So this is what I grew up with, all that stuff. And I was very excited about it. So... Fast forward a little bit, I graduate from high school, and I get into a university in the United States called Princeton. Now, Princeton is where Einstein was. He was no longer alive by the time I was there. But that place was, you know, it was sort of filled with 
incredible, incredible people doing incredible work. And throughout its history, it has been. And it was when I was there in the late 70s and early 80s. Now, I have to tell you, just as a kind of footnote to all this, that if all one did was to read the newspapers about what is going on in the United States, in this case, okay, and in general, you know, one would develop opinions about the place from afar, let's say, you know, reading about the United States by reading everything that's in the news, whatever newspaper, whatever that, you know, whatever that is for the most part, one would miss something really incredible. And that is real depth and passion and what is happening there and other places in the world that have to do with the leading edge of human thought and human thinking and human, you know, the passion to create, right? I mean, the very leading edge of our human ability to generate something new, to discern what it is that life is, okay? So, you know, a place like Princeton, a lot of that was happening and continues to happen. And that's what makes these institutions really great is that that stuff goes on. So when I was there, for example, Albert Einstein was no longer alive. You know, there were a, it's got an incredible uh, physics department and, and, and that legacy of that, all of that influence. David Bohm, whom I mentioned before, was there for a period of time. So, and other sorts of people who did incredible work. So, for example, you know, when they talk about one degree of separation. So when I was there, I was on a scholarship. And one of the things I had to do was work, right? Work study, you know, there's sort of that term work study. So what I did to gain income, mostly for sort of expenses and books and things like that, was I waitressed at a place on Nassau Street, which is the main drag in Princeton, called PJ's Pancake House. I waitressed one or two days a week at PJ's Pancake House. Now, I have to tell you, dear listener, that there are a number of things in life that are like great equalizers. They're like elements of what one could call sort of a universal language, you know, a universal experience, something that pretty much everybody can relate to. In the realm of human life, there's chocolate, <laughs> there's pizza, and their pancakes. And when I was waitressing at this place, the gamut of humanity would come through there. I mean, people would come and stop at this pancake place, you know, who were driving through, who were going to some totally other place, you know, but they were on their way and they'd stop in for pancakes. Professors would eat there, students would eat there, you know, people would come from all over and they would eat there. And I was, you know, a waitress there for at least one day, sometimes two days a week. So, this is kind of to just illustrate my point about this place. So I um, I noticed most days that I was there, a man coming in with a, a long trench coat. And he would sit always at the far end of the counter. So you had booths and tables and the counter. And he would always sit at the far end of the counter. And he would take out his pen or pencil, and he would have several napkins, here in Australia we call them serviettes, brown, 
And he would be scribbling on these napkins, right? Almost every time I was there, he would come in, he would sit in the same place at the counter, and he would sit there and scribble. And we always thought he was kind of strange because he didn't really make a lot of eye contact. He didn't have sort of much to say to anyone, and none of us sort of had any sense other than that about him. But he was always, you know, he was a good customer. Years later... I'm sitting in a movie theater and watching a film called A Beautiful Mind. It's a really moving biographical film about a man named John Nash, who was a mathematician, and he ended up winning the Nobel Prize for mathematics, for his work in mathematics. And this whole film is so engaging and also very moving because, the you know, John Nash had a lot of his own challenges. I mean, deep challenges, personal challenges, mental health challenges. I mean, it went on, you know. But he was this brilliant, brilliant man. And I'm sitting there in this movie theater and I'm watching this film. And you know how sometimes when there's a film is about a time in history or about a person and it is portraying something that actually happened at the end. They might actually show the person or they might show the scene or the place or something, you know, in real life. But at the end of this film, they showed a photograph of John Nash. And when I saw that photograph, I audibly gasped in that movie theater because I realized that that man who had been sitting at the end of that counter all those times I was there waitressing was none other than John Nash, Nobel Prize winner in mathematics. So when we talk about one degree of separation, that one degree in this case was a plate of pancakes. (laughs) Because he'd always come in and have them and he'd be scribbling on those napkins Never underestimate someone. You never know. We all underestimated him. We all underestimated him. Because he wasn't the kind of person that we thought was, quote-unquote, normal. He did seem a little different. But there he was, one of the greatest mathematicians in the history of mankind, humankind. So that was my some of my experience at Princeton. But getting back to physics, because there was a lot of it going on there, and my mom and her influence, you know, I was studying some of these guys too. I ended up majoring in photography, which is all about perception. And I realized that the work of these men All of them were men, at least the ones that I was studying, particularly David Bohm and Werner Heisenberg, German physicist, were talking about seeing. They were talking about what it means to see the world, what it means to 
what the perceptual, the experience of perception itself is, you see? And I was particularly drawn to David Bohm for a reason, because he had a beautiful philosophy that was coming out of his work. And to restate my disclaimer that I'm not a physicist, but my sense of him and his incredible contribution and the way that he would write really often for the layperson, you didn't have to be a physicist to understand what he was saying and the implications of, of his work. Just to give you a little background in a very, very simple way, Einstein was talking about big stuff, matter, energy, the macro scale. The quantum physicists were talking about the tiniest stuff, neutrinos and electrons and protons, even smaller particles than that. And just to say that at Princeton, one thing that they had that was already, that was constructed by the time I was there was a, a subatomic, atomic particle accelerator. And I had, for some reason, the opportunity to go into this building. It was its own huge whole building. And it was like there was a oval shape of, made of concrete, and you could walk into the middle of that oval shape, and then around you was this enclosed space that was shaped, shaped in, in the shape of an oval. And it was in that oval, um, enclosed oval shape that they would accelerate these particles, these subatomic particles, and study them, study their behavior. And I always remember walking into the center of that, and it wasn't comf it wasn't an uncomfortable feeling. It it was like almost like when the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, or you see a cat and it's you know its hair standing up. There was so much electromagnetic energy in that in that building that you could feel it, and it wasn't a comfortable feeling. But they were generating that current to accelerate these particles. So those were the small things, okay? So those were, they were dealing with the really small particles, the tiny particles, the tiny bits of matter, of, of reality. And Einstein had been dealing with the big stuff, matter and energy macro level. So David Bohm, incredible man. Einstein considered him his spiritual son. Einstein considered David Bohm his spiritual son. He saw him as a successor, okay? That's how brilliant he was, even at the earlier stages of his life. Bohm had a sense that there would have to be something that would reconcile the macro and the micro. The relativity, the theories of Einstein and the theories of quantum physics of people like Niels Bohr and, and that we're dealing with the tiniest stuff, that there must be something, some level of reality that would include it all. And in the 1980s, all right, which is not that long ago, he came up with something called the implicate order. And what that is, it's this deeper level 
a deeper level of reality that's even deeper and more fundamental than space itself, deeper and more fundamental than time, and that contains the entirety and reconciles everything because it ultimately is the source, the the, the ground of everything. Now, I have to tell you, dear listener, that at this juncture in my life, I just ordered two of his books. These are two books that my mom had that I knew of because of her. I ordered these two books by David Bohm. One is called Wholeness and the Implicate Order, and the other is called The Special Theory of Relativity. And I am waiting for those books because I have been reading him again. Why? Because what he's talking about is how everything is connected. Everything that exists, seen and unseen, time and space, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere is connected by virtue of this deepest level of reality, which he calls the implicate order. And I have to tell you that reading him before I go to bed, I sleep well because I find that notion of a realm that is deeper than all of the distinctions and differences that is the very ground of everything that we know and everything that we don't know, the very ground of it all, the fact that it exists and that the implication of it is that everything is actually fundamentally connected to everything else because it all comes out of this, right? This ground of being. I love it. It's so comforting. It's so comforting to contemplate that. And I feel like this stuff, like these theories, these these ways of seeing, this way of seeing, this understanding is so important for us now because the whole world, like the mess that's the world, right? The, the difficulties of the world, whether they're, you know, whether it's human conflict, human suffering, right? Everything we've done to the environment, our, what we do to the living world, to the things around us. I mean, you name it. I include myself. Our lives are wrought from all of it comes from the opposite of abiding sense of our our fundamental interconnectedness with all of life. So I feel like there's no better time that this time is, is, is just right for the rekindling of the work of this man. He passed away his theory is so important. And interestingly, and perhaps not surprisingly, he spoke a lot with some of the greatest spiritual leaders in the world, the Dalai Lama, J. Krishnamurti, others, people who, whose lives were devoted to the expression and contemplation of the great spiritual truths, that we are one, that we actually are one. And here, a physicist who is so erudite, who's so extraordinary in his work, is proving it. And I love that. So that's the first thing. 
physics. And the second thing, dear listener, is nature. These are the two things that I feel can be so helpful at this time, that I'm finding so helpful at this time. So I haven't spent a lot of my life living in a city, but I kind of live in a city now. I mean, I'm on the outskirts of Sydney, Australia. It's a built-up area. The air often isn't that great. I really treasured the lockdown because the air was clear. It was so beautiful, you know, the horizon. I live near the ocean. That's an unbelievable blessing. And there are areas where, around near where I live, where there are big trees and ancient trees and sort of grassy areas and places where you can walk, which are park-like right? A little botanical garden. You know, I can go up and plant myself amidst the trees. And I have to say that alongside what I just described to you about these understandings that come through theoretical physics that point to the fact that we are so deeply and truly interconnected, all of us, everything that exists. Alongside that, parking myself amidst those trees, is really healing. And it's healing and reassuring and comforting in a way that I feel is even more kind of deeply sensed in myself than than before. I've always loved nature. I grew up with trees around me and beautiful trees. You know, I've always loved nature. I just feel most at home in nature. If I can get a whiff of fresh air, my entire being shifts. My entire being, it shifts. My whole way of sensing everything shifts. But I go up there, and I was standing up under some trees in this sort of, you know, this kind of nook. It was, there was a little path, and there were trees that were shading that path and sheltering that little path, and it it was off the beaten track, so I was a little bit hidden under there, and I was standing there the other day, just standing, you know, so I was, I was off the concrete, there's a lot of concrete around here, a lot of concrete, I live in a city, and, but I was standing on this dirt path under these trees, and like I felt myself become restored to who I actually am. It's difficult to describe this to you. It was as if my entire being simplified. It became simple. All the layers suddenly dissolved. All the layers of self-identity and everything dissolved. And I was just there in this way that almost paradoxically carried with it a kind of sense of indomitability, a sense of strength that was so striking to me. It was like a kind of feeling of autonomy and independence, but without any personality, particular personality structure associated with it. It was just who I am. And I think to myself, oh my gosh, this is what it really means to be human. And when you think back over the history, the long, the millennia of human life on earth, it's very actually relatively recently that humans have not been surrounded by nature as their primary environment, 
up until the Industrial Revolution, which was only a couple hundred years ago, it's not that long, nature was pretty much you know, pervasive, ubiquitous. It was, it was, you know, clean air, right? Air. We didn't have the extinctions and things that have happened over the course of these last, you know, 200 years or so. The earth was just less populated. So this is really the first time relatively, really recently that people are not in touch. So many people are not generally, as a matter of just their daily life, connected necessarily to nature, cars, offices, homes, I mean, etc. So for me, this lockdown has been actually really significant because it was like the universe and life and God and, you know, was saying, okay, everybody to your room. <laughs> Go to your room. I mean, I don't mean to make light of this because it's been a very tough circumstance for, 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 for so many, you know, people of us, you know, but look what happened. Within weeks, the natural world, there was a resurgence, there was a rekindling, there was a, a reconstituting of things, living beings. I could see it. I mean, bugs, there were more bugs inside of two weeks. There were more bugs around here. They've kind of disappeared now that there's all the traffic and the exhaust and everything in the movement, I can see the effect. I mean, it's amazing in one's lifetime now, in this postmodern life, to have this juxtaposition so profoundly apparent. This is what happens when human life stops. This is what happens when human life goes. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, within weeks, we've all been given this insight, this actual experience. Now, just as another little footnote, to me, with kids, all the kids going back to school, this would be what, in my mind, would be the most interesting, significant, pertinent, you know, meaningful thing for these kids to be talking about. What's the difference between life stopping and life starting? Human life stopping and human life starting. What was your experience? What did you observe? What was it? right? What was your life like? What did you see? What did you feel? What did you think? You know, if you went outside like the kids do, you know, were able to do here a little bit, even when it was locked down, they could go and play a little bit just when their families, you know, by the, by the water. What was the difference? Then they could become masters of their own experiences and feel like those experiences made sense. They could begin to draw certain sorts of observations and conclusions and, and insights and meaningful sorts of directions inside of themselves based upon their own experience. Anyway, that might be a whole other podcast. I did one before about children and discovery during the lockdown because, anyway, I have a very great passion about this because life starts with these kids and they are our future. And um, what happens for them makes a huge difference. It's just something very much in my heart. So, but life stopped and now it started again. So nature, I just feel nature, you know, like what I described going up into those trees onto that dirt path, that experience is something that I'm seeking now consciously as a way to begin to help me move forward in my own life and in general to 
chart some kind of new course. I feel I could say this, I think, with some sort of confidence that for any of us, now human beings, nature is really important. It's really important. It's going to help guide us. Like the physics that I said before and the way in which we can experience ourselves and understand that we are truly interconnected, nature reinforces that truth, right? I was up in that beautiful place I was telling you about with the ancient gum trees, ancient gum trees. I mean, and there are palm trees up there. I have never seen sorts of these palm trees like this before. I mean, I have no idea. They would be hundreds of years old. And I stand under those things, right? Those beautiful palm trees and those beautiful eucalyptus trees and the birds are there and everything. And in a part of this place, okay, it's kind of a, a sort of reserve, but in a part of this place, I understand that they're going to actually be making a kind of elevated walkway in one part of it. And some of the local residents are really understandably distressed. And I don't know what gives with us as human beings. You know, we always got to do something. <laughs> I mean, at this point, I really have to think that it, we really got to kind of start to take stock in what's really important. Do we really need the walkway? You know, what's more important right now? I mean, that bit of nature up there, this is the thing. These are the values I was talking about at the beginning, right? To begin to discriminate based upon the fact that we are at the threshold of a new life that we are going to determine how this is going to go. And we need nature to be undisturbed. So I was up there a couple of days ago, and they'd already moved some little like earth moving equipment up there. And I was it was very interesting because it was the weekend, so it wasn't happening. But I was walking amongst some of the trees and I could feel something. When you start to really tune into trees, you can see that they are sentient beings just like we are, okay? They really are. You can feel their presence. And I had this feeling, I don't know if this will sound crazy to you, but honestly, I felt that there was some sense that these trees felt nervous. They felt nervous. They sensed some kind of change was going to happen. Now I understand that they're not going to be taking down any trees. But nonetheless, you're disturbing. When you disturb the earth, you disturb roots, you disturb a lot of stuff. Just that moving around with these machines disturbs stuff. So that's what I felt. And I felt like I wanted to reassure those trees. I felt somehow, what can I do to reassure those trees? Hoping that, you know, maybe everything was actually going to kind of be minimal that everything was going to be minimal. Their disruption would be minimal. Those trees wouldn't be disrupted. It would be okay. I wanted to reassure them. So, dear listener, this is what is happening, and I really feel that I'm being given clues as to how to begin to navigate my own life, seeing as how I've been, you know, decided to make a fairly significant change on the one hand, it's sort of a significant change. On the other hand, it's actually coming home really to myself. It's actually a coming home. It's kind of an alignment. I was talking to a friend of mine, you know, the other day, and it was sort of like we started to talk about this and how, you know, people are beginning to, people are actually in the space that we've been given, that we've been given this lockdown and so on. You know, some people are starting to sort of 
reassess what they're doing. I really feel this is a kind of coming home. I like to call it my plan B. (laughs) Because plan plan A was sort of the lack of, it's kind of the plan A is more like the normal, kind of like sort of the, the, the sort of more expected way of being. I like plan B. It's like plan B is actually what one has been put on this earth to do. I don't know if this is coming across, but for some reason plan B feels better to call it plan B than plan A. Plan A was like the first chapter. Now this is really, this is this next chapter. This is this next chapter. So with that, dear listener, I really hope that you're well. I hope that what I can share with you through this medium of voice moving across the airwaves, it only demonstrates that sense that we are so connected that we can actually communicate like this that I can communicate this to you, that you're there, you know, that your listening ear is a part of this, your experience. Whatever this might mean to you is, these things are absolutely intrinsically connected, intrinsically connected. And one thing makes the other meaningful. You see, we don't exist in isolation. We've been in isolation to a greater extent than ever, but I think it showed us that we really aren't ultimately isolated and that's our nature is at the deepest level that we're connected we're really 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 deeply interconnected so thank you so much for listening i really appreciate it i'll end with some music it's one of my favorite hymns it's called in the garden the first words are i come to the garden alone When the dew is fresh on the roses, and it's just one of the most glorious, beautiful, beautiful hymns, it is so singing to, playing to, that which is ineffable, beautiful, present, the source of the most wonderful kinds of feelings of joy and awe and delight and reassurance, and love. So take good care, okay? And warmest wishes to you now and always. Now and always.